I'd like to start by paraphrasing the beginning of a short story by H.G. Wells. One day, a mountaineer, Nunes, who is climbing with a party of his friends high in the Andes, slips. His friends see him fall and fall and fall, down the mountainside, through the clouds, out of sight. They reason there's no way he could have survived, and there's no way to recover his body. So reluctantly, they give him up for dead, and return home. Nunes, however, is not dead. Trees and snow have broken his fall, so he has an actuality pitched up with only minor cuts and bruises at the bottom of the mountain in a deep and wide valley. He walks towards the centre of the valley, and as he does so, the trees thin out, and he can see it's surrounded by impassable mountains on all sides bar one, a side which is in turn cut off from the outside world by a large and obviously ancient rockfall. Further, he sees that he's not alone. In the centre of the valley, there is a village, presumably isolated then from the outside world for thousands of years. Roads come out from this village at regular intervals, like spokes on a wheel, and as he walks down one of these roads, towards the village, a man makes his way up the road to meet him. The two draw closer, and Nunes is shocked to see that where the man's eyes should be, there's actually just smooth skin. The man is obviously congenitally blind. Nunes is about to speak, and when the man greets him, he's obviously heard Nunes' footsteps. With some difficulty, they make themselves understood to one another. The man, as Nunes thinks of it, speaks a corrupted version of his language. Nunes, as the man thinks of it, speaks a corrupted version of his language. Be that as it may, the man is friendly and accompanies Nunes into the village as they talk together. As they draw closer, other villagers, who Nunes notices also suffer from the same congenital blindness, emerge from their windowless houses to join them. A meeting of the village elders is called, and Nunes, as he awaits it, recalls and ponders a saying that he once heard in his youth, concluding from it that although he might never be able to escape from the valley, he will quickly be given a position of power within the valley community. The saying Nunes ponders is this, In the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. The claim to have a sixth spiritual sense is not at all unusual. Polls reveal that the majority of people in this country would claim to have had at some stage in their lives at least one experience that they describe as being as if of something supernatural, the most common type of experience for people in this country being one as if of God. So I'm now going to consider what it might be reasonable for you to believe if it seemed to you yourself one day that you'd had such an experience. Would it seeming to you as if there's a God be a good reason for you to think, for you to believe that there is a God? Okay. Richard Swinburne has crystallised out what seems to me to be the relevant epistemological principle in his book, uh, The Existence of God. He calls the principle the principle of credulity, and roughly speaking, the principle of credulity states that if it seems to a subject that something X is present, then all other things being equal, it's reasonable for that subject to believe that X really isn't present. Uh, this is an exact uh, quotation from Swinburne, but it's close enough, and there are some details uh, for exact quotation finding on the handout. The other things being equal clause is meant to cover things like just having walked through a door labelled entrance to a hall of illusion or having just drunk ten tequila slammers followed up by a lysergic acid diethylamine LSD chaser. In the absence of these sorts of considerations, i.e. considerations which you know from past experience have been shown to have led to deceptive experiences, a subject should be credulous. That's the upshot of the principle. They should believe that the world is as it appears to be. If it seems to you there's a man in front of you talking to you, well, that's prima facie good reason for you to believe that there is a man in front of you talking to you. And you should believe that which you have prima facie reason to believe, unless you know that there are special considerations of the all other things not being equal type obtaining. 
So that's the principle of credulity. If it seems to somebody that something is present, then, well, all other things being equal, it's reasonable for him or her to believe that that thing really is present. Now I'm going to ask, what reason do we have for thinking that we're most reasonable in collecting our beliefs according to the principle of credulity, rather than according to some other principle? We could, it seems, collect our beliefs according to a more sceptical principle than the principle of credulity. <clears throat> One such principle would be the following. If it seems to a subject that something X is present, then it's reasonable for him or her to believe that X really is present, if and only if he or she has a knock-down, drag-out, deductive argument showing there's no possible way that his or her senses could be deceiving him or her, an argument which starts from indubitable premises and employs reasoning that not even an omnipotent demon could be confusing that subject about. So that's a more restrictive principle. Now, those of you who've studied Descartes will have come across this sort of epistemic rigorism uh, before, and you'll have seen where it leads to, solipsism of the present moment, the view that the only thing we can know is that our own mind exists at the moment that one's having the thought that one's mind exists. The principle of credulity says, in effect, trust the world of appearances unless you've got reason not to do so, and Descartes said, in effect, don't trust the world of appearances unless you've got positive reason to do so. So it might seem that there's nothing to be said in favour of Swinburne's principle over Descartes, except that Descartes makes progress in any area impossible. As uh, Hume puts it towards the end of the first inquiry, uh, it's on page 153 of the Selby Big edition, which is the standard edition you've probably got on your shelves. Here's a quote. It is a question of fact whether the perceptions of the senses be produced by external objects resembling them. How shall this question be determined? By experience, surely, as are all other questions of a like nature. But here experience is and must be entirely silent. The mind has never anything present to it but the perceptions, and cannot possibly reach any experience of their connection with objects. The supposition of such a connection is, therefore, without any foundation in reasoning. So, it seems then that the principle of credulity can't be non-question-beggingly argued for, and it may be leading you astray, because you might indeed be a brain in a vat being fed illusory experiences. But even if one can suspend one's use of it for a moment or two in a philosophy tutorial, for the purposes of everyday life one relies on the principle of credulity absolutely, and one regards oneself as rational in doing so. If the philosophy of religion is not to become epistemology generally, we must ignore the scepticism of those who argue that there's no reason to believe that there's a God, but it is only reasons for thinking that there are no reasons for believing there's a God, are the arguments that hyperbolic sceptics put forward for us having no reason to believe that there's anything exterior to our own minds at the present time. The lady who wrote to Bertrand Russell saying, I'm a solipsist, and it's such a good philosophical position to hold that I'm surprised I don't find more people sharing the view with me. She wasn't assisting him in his sceptical philosophy of religion philosophy of religion. So if we allow ourselves to divide through, as it were, by the Cartesian sort of scepticism, we will in effect be accepting something akin to the principle of credulity, and in that sense then Swinburne is right to suggest, as he does, that the principle of credulity is a principle of rationality, even if in some exigent Cartesian sense one might be rational and yet not accepted. In the practical, day-to-day -day sense, anyone who seriously thought that most of the time was, the world wasn't as it appeared to them to be would be being irrational. So it is that I suggest that we should accept the principle of credulity. I'm not going to be arguing with that. <coughs> OK, given the principle of credulity, it follows that if it seems to you you're having the experience of God, you have good reason, in virtue of that experience, for believing that there is a God, unless you have reason to believe that all other things are not equal, that special considerations obtain. Remember that clause. 
A word or two then about special considerations and whether or not we can have reason to believe that they always obtain in the case of religious experiences. The majority of people who have experiences as if of God are very normal people. They raise families, they watch TV, they pay their taxes. They are what, uh, they're not what, for want of a better term, one might call religious nutters. Other elements of these people's perceptual apparatus seem to equip them well for functioning in the everyday physical and social world. So why suppose that this, what they might perhaps think of as a sixth spiritual sense, why suppose that this doesn't put them in touch with a higher spiritual reality, but rather is some subject-specific hallucination-inducing abnormality? <coughs> well, suppose that scientists were to discover a section of the brain that was different in these people, the people who have religious experiences, experiences which seem to them as if of God speaking to them, say. Suppose scientists were to discover this section of the brain, and Tess revealed that scientists could remove the section without in any other way damaging the patient, and that if they did so, if they removed it, then from that moment on no more other uh, religious experiences would be had. Would all of this show that the preceding religious experiences weren't veridical? Well, I don't think that in itself it would. Nunez's eyes are ultimately regarded by the natives of the country of the blind as unfortunate growths that hamper him in engaging with reality by letting him too much heat into his head. What would happen to Nunez's ability to have visual experiences if one day the medicine man of the village of the country of the blind removed his eyes? Well, obviously it would disappear. But that doesn't stop Nunez's eyesight being veridical. If scientists were to discover some differences in the brains of those who've had religious experiences as opposed to those who haven't had, the question of whether to label that section of the brain a sense organ or a subject-specific hallucination-inducing deformity would not in itself be decided simply by its discovery. And what goes for finding a section of the brain goes for many of the other things which are often taken to be special considerations telling against religious experience tracking truth. For example, that religious experiences often occur in those who are already members of a religious community, that they often occur after long periods of prayer and so on. Unless those in these putative special circumstances had a proven inability to form correct belief by means of their other senses whilst in them, which characteristically they do not, although fasting is perhaps uh, the exception to that, well then these so-called special considerations could not be, non-question-beggingly, taken to be such as to undermine the prima facie good reason to believe that there's a God which these people's religious experiences are providing for them. Okay, excuse me just a minute. <clears throat> a more powerful argument against the radicality of religious experience and thus the reasonableness of taking having had a religious experience as even prima facie reason for believing what the experience seems to reveal would be provided if those who had religious experience had a proven inability to form correct beliefs more often than incorrect ones by means of their spiritual sense. And it's not unreasonable, not unreasonable I say, to think that there might be some hope of doing this by showing that the diversity in the contents of the world's religions is so great that on the truth of any one of them, the majority of people who come to beliefs on the basis of their religious experiences must be coming to false beliefs. Okay, so consider by way of analogy the following situation. You're standing with some friends by the side of a deserted road to watch a car rally. After a few minutes, a lone car goes noisily by, and it seems to you to be blue. And this seeming to you is, then, via the principle of credulity, a prima facie good reason for you to believe that the car that's just passed is indeed blue, given that you've no reason to believe that all other things are not equal. For example, you're not aware of any special considerations obtaining, it's broad daylight, you have an unobstructed view of the road, as do your friends, you've just had your eyesight tested and it was 2020, you certainly no reason to think then your colour perception is off and so on. Okay. So you therefore believe the car is blue, 
and you think yourself reasonable for doing so. So far, so good. You say to the man standing next to you that you think that the blue car that's just passed was, let's say, an original S-type Jaguar, you venture this opinion. He looks back at you somewhat startled. Well, it was a Jaguar, all right, he says, but it wasn't blue, it was bright red. The lady standing next to him confirms his judgment, the man's. It's certainly red, she says. Someone else chimes in. Of course it was red. Another says, referring to the first man's judgment again, not yours. That's right, red. Well, what is it rational for you to believe now about the colour of the car that's just passed? It strikes me it would be rational for you to withdraw your judgment that the car was probably blue and replace it with the judgment that the car was probably red. Or it could be if I tell enough details to the story. I could generate such a story. So to the extent that what seems to you to be the case is contradicted by the numerous and consistent testimonies of other independent witnesses, you have reason to believe that special considerations obtain, even if you can't see what they might be, and thus to be more sceptical about your original judgment. If the testimonies are sufficiently numerous, consistent and independent, you should indeed withdraw your original judgment and replace it with the collective judgment of these other people. If the testimonies of others are not quite numerous, unanimous or independent enough for this, well then perhaps you should suspend the judgment altogether. Indeed, for a certain telling of the fleshing out of the details of a story, you would make it the case that you should suspend judgment altogether. Uh, let me alter the situation slightly then, in fact. As before, it seems to you that the car that's just sped by was blue. When you say this to the man next to you, he replies that it was red. Okay. However, the lady standing next to him in this version says, well, wait a minute, it was jet black. Someone else says, it was yellow with pink spots. Another says, what car? What is it rational for you to believe now about the colour of the car? To the extent that what seems to you to be the case is contradicted by the testimonies of others, you've reason to be sceptical about the veridicality of your perceptions. However, if those testimonies themselves conflict with one another, then to the extent that they cannot be said to support any judgment more than they can be said to support any other, it's rational for you to stick by your original judgment as the one most probably correct amongst them whilst downgrading the probability that it is correct by some and perhaps considerable extent. If the collective testimony of your peers is worthless as a guide to the colour of the car, it's simply too various to support any particular judgment, then you're thrown back on the fact that it certainly seemed to you that the car was blue. And whilst now you should be much more sceptical about this too than you would have been before hearing your peers' testimony, you should believe that it's more likely to be blue than it is to be any other particular colour, which is of course quite compatible with believing that it's more likely to be some other colour than it is to be blue. If you had to put your money anywhere, you put it on blue. But in putting it on blue, you think of it more likely than not that you would be losing your money, or about to lose your money. In the presence of testimony which conflicts with your experience, yet which is so mutually inconsistent that it, as it were, cancels itself out, you are always justified in sticking with your original judgment in at least that very minimal sense, though you know, let's underscore the fact that is quite a minimal sense. At this stage then, the inductive soundness from the of the argument from having had a religious experience oneself depends on certain empirical contingencies concerning how variable and mutually exclusive the contents and testimonies of the uh, world's religions uh, are. Uh, the contents and testimonies of those who claim to have had a religious experience. Now this is a question which isn't really within the field of philosophy of religion and I must therefore leave my conclusion uh, rather hypothetical. If it seems to you that there's a God and the testimony against its being true that there's a God is not very great or mutually consistent in itself then it could remain overall reasonable for you to believe that there probably is a God on the basis of this experience alone. 
If, on the other hand, there's numerous and unanimous testimony from others that, on the basis of their own experiences, you're mistaken, well, you should accept that you probably are mistaken. Unless, that is, you have other arguments for God, for example, the design argument, to buttress your belief here. But putting that to one side, you should believe that you are probably mistaken, and that, despite what appears to you to be the case, there is no God. If a testimony from others is so mutually inconsistent that it neither supports nor undermines the claim that there's a God, if it, as I put it, cancels itself out, well then it could remain overall reasonable for you to believe that your experience raises the probability that there is a God to some extent, but that might very well be a very minimal extent, as I say. Appearances can be deceptive, for sure. So no argument from religious experience is ever going to be a deductively sound argument for the existence of God. There will always remain the possibility that it's leading you from truth to falsity. But an argument from religious experience, if you've had one, could in principle be a good inductive argument for the existence of God, and failing that, it could in principle inductively support the existence of God. Let's suppose that you've never had any such experiences at all. What should you believe when confronted with the testimonies of those who claim that they have had such an experience, when confronted with the argument, as one might put it, from other people's testimonies to having had religious experience? Well, I'm going to argue that the answer to this question parallels the answer to the question what does a person born blind have most reason to believe when they hear someone tell them that he or she by contrast has an additional sense which has enabled him or her to discern various things about the world of colour excuse me just a minute <clears throat> thank you okay the hero in the H.G. Wells story Nunes finds much more difficulty than he initially anticipates in showing the inhabitants of the country of the blind that he does have privileged access to an aspect of reality of which they are ignorant. They quickly label him as mad, albeit in a relatively confined area of his life, and ignore his, what are to them, largely meaningless jabberings. And, whilst we can see from the outside, if you like, that they're wrong, we can't help but think, if we read a story, I think you'll find this, we can't help but think that they're reasonable in reacting this way. Now consider the situation of those born blind in our society. They, by contrast with the natives of the country of the blind, do not dismiss the talk concerning this thing called colour as meaningless jabbering. They do regard those around them as having privileged access to an aspect of reality of which they are ignorant. They quickly label these other people sighted, and accept on the strength of their testimony the truth of claims, the terms used in which, red, blue and so on, the terms used in which we cannot help but think they can't fully understand. This seems to be the reasonable thing for them to do. So what's the difference between the two cases, people born blind in the country of the blind and the people born blind in our country? Well, I suggest that the important difference is that in the country of the blind, Nunes is the only testifier to the existence and character of the world of colour, whereas in our society there are numerous people who describe themselves as sighted, and not only are they numerous, but also they agree with one another as to the character of this world of colour. So from all this, if the analogy is apposite, it would follow that, to the extent that there was a substantial number of people testifying in an essentially consistent way to the existence and character of a spiritual world, that would be a reason for those who not themselves had any experiences of this world to believe that it existed and have the character to which these people's collective testimony bore witness. So, I'm inclined to conclude that to the extent that those who claim to be in receipt of religious experience are numerous amongst us, and speak with a consistent voice as to the nature of the spiritual reality they take themselves uh, to be uh, experiencing. It's reasonable for those of us without the benefit, and benefit is then the right word, the benefit of religious experience, to take their collective testimony as reason for believing in the truth of what they say as to the nature of the spiritual world. 
to the extent that those who claim to be in receipt of religious experiences are few and far between, and to the extent that they speak with contradictory voices as to the nature of a spiritual reality they take these experiences to reveal, it's reasonable for us, those of us without the hindrance, and hindrance is then the right word, of religious experiences, to take their collective testimony as a reason to believe that there's a relatively infrequent, subject-specific, hallucination-inducing condition which we've been lucky enough not to have developed. At this stage then, the argument from other people's testimonies to having had religious experiences is thrown back once again on those things which philosophers are perhaps sadly loath to engage with, empirical facts. Um, empirical facts are relevant, but this isn't a, uh, a series of lectures about empirical matters, but rather about the uh, arguments uh, in which they find their home. And so I'm not going to get into it. To what extent are there large numbers of independent witnesses? To what extent do these witnesses testify in a consistent way as to the character and existence of a spiritual world? Well, as I say, to investigate these questions would take many more lectures and take one outside the field of the philosophy of religion. So in this context, then, I must leave my conclusion hypothetical. If the right sort of testimony were forthcoming, the argument from religious experience construed as the argument from other people's testimonies to having had religious experience could provide one with reasons for believing that there's a God. These reasons could never amount to a deductively sound argument for the existence of God, because what seems to people, even what seems to an enormous number of people to be the case, still might not be the case. Appearances can be deceptive. So it is that any argument from other people's testimonies to having had religious experience of the existence of God could only ever at most be an inductively sound argument. But if the right sort of testimony were forthcoming, it might very well be that, and even if it wasn't quite that, if the testimonies were rather too minimal or inconsistent to raise in themselves the probability sufficiently for it to be more probable than not that there was a God, well, an argument from other people's testimonies to having had religious experience could inductively support the theistic conclusion, i.e. raise the probability of its being true to some extent. As such, an argument from other people's testimonies to having had religious experience could in principle perform part of an inductively sound cumulative case argument for the existence of God. Okay, so which of these arguments that might be good in principle are in fact good in practice? Well, my thesis has been that you must investigate and decide. But I want to close this part of a lecture um, by referring to what would follow for you were your investigation to turn up the results uh, that mine has. So here I'm speaking, as it were, outside my field of specialism, somewhat anecdotally, even no reason uh, to go along with me. Okay. The collective testimony of religious experience of humanity is multitudinous, but whilst relatively multitudinous, it is also relatively disparate. The commonalities amongst people's religious experiences, and here we uh, must remember to include those of the adherents of religions which don't see the supernatural order as personal, the commonalities amongst people's religious experiences is merely that there's some supernatural realm that is not malevolent and that putting oneself in touch with it is of vital importance. Um, not fundamentally malevolent, maybe there's devils and things, but the most ultimate, the most powerful uh, supernatural dimension is not malevolent. Okay. As such, the collective testimony of humanity is not enough to give us positive reason to prefer any one religion over any other. That's my claim. Even then, though, it does, given that the testimonies to this effect are numerous enough, and from people whose integrity we have no reason to question, it does give us some reason to suppose that physicalism is false, which is no small result. We have reason to believe that there is a supernatural realm in addition to a physical, a supernatural realm which explains why there's a physical realm for us to describe, why there's an us to do with describing, a supernatural realm which we need to orientate ourselves properly towards if we're to find our ultimate 
fulfilment. It's just that we can't, from a study of the collective testimony of humanity alone, conclude anything less vague than that about the nature of the supernatural realm, and thus how it is that we might orientate ourselves properly towards it. But perhaps we can move beyond this rather vague conclusion. Perhaps the testimonies of those who subscribe to one religion should be given greater weight than those who subscribe to another, not because they have greater integrity or more numerous, but rather because there are peculiar features integral to that one religion that only that religion's being true could explain. And this line of thinking brings us to the next argument that we'll consider, the argument from reports of apparent miracles. <coughs> okay. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified, died and was buried. So far there's nothing particularly unusual. But the Gospels go on to tell us something else, that three days later Jesus was miraculously raised from the dead. Surely only God could have performed such a feat, and thus surely the Gospels give us reason to believe that there's a God, and indeed to believe that this God has endorsed one religion, Christianity, over and above the others. This is a version of the argument from reports of apparent miracles, and our friend the great David Hume was the most significant critic of it. And for the rest of this week's lecture, I'm going to be focusing on what he had to say, what Hume had to say. Firstly, we might uh, consider then what I call Hume's a priori argument against the rationality of believing in miracles on the testimony of others. This is on the handout. Hume's a priori argument there. Uh, the most detailed definition of miracles that Hume gives is in a footnote on uh, page 115 of Selby Big, where he says this. A miracle may be accurately defined a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. Well, that one might think is fair enough. A merely unusual event, however fortuitous, wouldn't properly be called a miracle. So far then, so good. In the main text preceding the note in which Hume's defined miracles, he observes that wise people proportion their belief according to the evidence. Well, again, that might seem reasonable enough. Well, again then, so far so good. Having made this point, Hume goes on to define laws of nature as whatever uniform experience has established. Why do you think that it's a law of nature that water boils at 100 uh, degrees centigrade, or at least uh, does so at sea level or under one atmosphere of pressure? Well, because that's what you and thousands of other people have had uniform experience of having happened in the past. Laws of nature then, by definition, have uniform experience, maximally good evidence, in favour of their always holding. Otherwise they wouldn't be called laws of nature, they'd be called pretty good generalisations or something. So with these points in the bag, we've now got all the materials we need to construct Hume's a priori argument against the rationality of believing in miracles on the testimony of others. A report of a miracle is, on Hume's definition, amongst other things, a report that a law of nature hasn't held. That's what makes it a report of a miracle, rather than a report of perhaps a rather unusual and fortuitous event. So, a report of a miracle is a report of something which, were it to have happened, would have gone against that which you have maximally good evidence for believing. Because laws of nature are that which you've had a uniform experience in favour of always holding. So, when you proportion your belief according to the evidence, therefore, when you're a wise person, remember how you defined a wise person, you must believe that the report probably isn't true, that the miracle probably did not occur. As Hume himself puts it, this is another quote, A miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, and as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle, from the very nature of the fact, is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Now, there are a number of things that might worry one about Hume's argument and have worried philosophers uh, ever since. Um, I'm not going to be able to even to mention all of the things that one might uh, worry about. There is some uh, more uh, material available on the handout. 
But I want to start by drawing attention to how parallel arguments are obviously wrong. So the first point I'm going to make against Hume's a priori argument is rather analogous then to that overload objection which we considered to the ontological argument. It shows that something's gone wrong with it, but even if it doesn't quite show us what. Consider the following uh, scenario. You are the Lady Margaret Professor of Bananas at Oxford University. You've been studying bananas all your life, and in your life you've never seen a straight one. You have firm and unalterable experience then, as you might have put it, that bananas are always bent. As Professor of Bananas, you often act as a reviewer for articles submitted to your professional journal, Top Banana. One day, Top Banana sends you an article for review. It's written by respected banana experts at another institution. You've reviewed their papers before. They've almost always been uniformly excellent. And you read the article, and the substance of it is a claim made by these scientists that they found a straight banana. Well, the article looks scholarly, sure, and the scientists at this other institution, when you contact them, pledge their sincerity and so on. But what, according to Hume, should you believe? Well, a straight banana is, for you, something which contravenes the law of nature, for laws of nature are, according to Hume, just whatever your form, firm and unalterable experience has established. And your firm and unalterable experience has been that bananas are always bent. Thus these people's claims amount to the claim that a miracle has occurred, and so you should believe that they are mistaken or deliberately out to deceive you. You should screw up the article, thread in the bin. But that seems unduly narrow-minded. If you couldn't sometimes be reasonable in believing those who told you something that was contrary to your experience, then science as a collaborative exercise could never exist. No scientist could ever be reasonably shaken in his or her prejudices by the reports of others, for insofar as these reports contradicted those prejudices, he would simply dismiss them. So something's gone wrong with Hume's argument. What? <clears throat> well, one thing that may have been troubling you is that Hume has defined laws of nature as whatever uniform experience has established. But surely laws of nature are whatever laws nature actually follows, and what uniform experience establishes is rather ideas in our mind about what these laws are. So let me distinguish then between what I call objective laws of nature and what I call subjective laws of nature. Objective laws of nature are the laws that the universe really follows, that scientific theories approximate and indeed seem with each generation to approximate more and more accurately. I'm assuming a certain realism in the philosophy of science here. The subjective laws of nature, on the other hand, are, roughly speaking, the laws established by taking the simplest law that can be made to harmonise with what's been our firm and unalterable experience to date, and uh, indeed projecting it, uh, its application into the future. The subjective laws, if you like, are our best guess at what the objective laws are. Once we've distinguished between subjective laws and objective laws in this way, Hume's definition of miracles, mentioning as it does simply laws of nature, must strike us as chronically ambiguous. Having made the distinction, we'll need to seek to tidy up, if you will, Hume's original definition. And resultantly, it seems that we should say that to be a bona fide miracle, in contrast perhaps to an event which might very well be taken as a miracle, an event has to transgress what is in reality, independently of what anyone thinks about it, a law of nature. So it has to be an event that transgresses an objective law of nature, in the sense I've introduced. However, once we've tidied it up like this, there's a problem. It's impossible to know with complete certainty whether or not any event ever counts as a miracle on this new definition. Epistemically speaking, we only ever have access to our subjective laws. Remember, our subjective laws are our best guess at what the objective laws are. So we can never tell with complete certainty whether or not a particular event satisfies the description of miracles specified in the revised definition. However, this consequence isn't fatal to Hume's argument. There are all sorts of things that one can form reasonable beliefs about without certainty, and I'm going to argue in a moment this is just one of them. 
As a matter of fact, one can distinguish between an event which, were it to occur, would be contrary to all that one's had experience of to date, and yet which one would not count reasonably as a miracle, for example, a straight banana. One can distinguish between that and an occurrence which, were it to occur, would not only be contrary to all that one's had experience of to date, but would also, one reasonably suspects, be a miracle, for example, a resurrection. One can draw this distinction. Well, how can one do this? There are two parts of the answer uh, to this question. Part of the answer lies in the fact that one takes simplicity of hypothesis to be a guide to truth, and the hypothesis there's a God plus simple objective laws of nature might be simpler overall than the hypothesis there isn't a God, but there are much more complicated laws of nature. Another part lies in the fact that one can come to some reasonable beliefs about what sort of events God, were he to exist, would have good reason to bring about. So let me look at the first part first, and let me turn uh, to the case of the Gospels' reports of uh, Jesus' resurrection, as historically it is uh, the Gospels that have been the focus of concern when people have been arguing about these issues. If these reports are of a sufficient quantity and quality, and of course that's a big if that I'm just bracketing off for other people to address, if these reports are of a sufficient quantity and quality to justify one in believing that the events they describe probably did occur, then one's faced with a choice. Either believe that the subjective law, more or less, when you're dead, you're dead, the law that at the sort of um, uh, observable level could be summarised loosely under that description. Either believe that the subjective law, when you're dead, you're dead, is probably not indeed an objective law, but rather has to be modified, and that's complicated quite a lot. Jesus was resurrected, but that's a naturally explicable event, so it's one way one could go. Or believe that it is indeed an objective law, that when you're dead, you're dead, but there's a God or some other supernatural being who intervened on this particular occasion to break it. If the Gospel accounts are of sufficient quantity and quality, the, the big if, then which of these one should believe will depend on balancing how well supported the subjective law of nature is and how simple the hypothesis that there's a God or some other supernatural being is. Now, the subjective law of nature that when you're dead, you're dead, using that as shorthand for the biological laws that we suppose imply that uh, truth of folk science, the subjective law of nature that when you're dead, you're dead, is extremely well supported by experience. God, I argued, is in himself a relatively simple entity to posit, certainly simpler than any other supernatural person. So, when dealing with the Gospels accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, one is dealing with testimonies to an event which, were it to have happened, would have contravened a subject of law for the accuracy of which there's a great deal of evidence. I a great deal of evidence that it's not simply subjective, but is also objective. It is thus rational to think that if the Gospels are of a sufficiently high quantity and quality for it to become reasonable for one to believe that the events they describe occurred, that's the big if, one should stick with the simplest law, when you're dead, you're dead, and see the evidence not as evidence that one's experiences to date haven't been sufficiently wide to get one's subjective laws sufficiently close to the objective laws in this area, but rather as evidence that there's a God, something which is not intrinsically so complicated as to reduce the overall probability of one's working hypothesis below that of the hypothesis that the objective laws of nature concerning death don't have the form, as I've been giving it in folk scientific terms, when you're dead, you're dead. <clears throat> now, asking why this might be the case with resurrections and not straight bananas brings me to the second part of the answer. One could be reasonable in believing that if there were a God, he'd be more likely to perform miraculous resurrections than miraculous fruit strainings. Now, I'm not going to argue for this. Rather, I'm just going to give a name to the difference between the two cases. It is, as I'm going to put it, a difference of existential significance. Existentially significant events are those events which God, were he to exist, would be more likely to find reason to bring about miraculously. 
And it's not easy to articulate exactly what existential significance amounts to, but I suggest this doesn't really matter for the purposes of our investigation, for we all have a tolerably clear understanding of when it would be there and when it would not in extreme cases, no doubt there are marginal cases. A straight banana would not be existentially significant. A man who claimed to be God and who'd been dead for three days coming back to life would be existentially significant. When dealing with testimonies to an event which were to have happened would not have been existentially significant, for example the finding of a straight banana, it would be rational for one to think that if the testimonies reach a sufficiently high standard for it to become reasonable for one to believe that the event occurred, it's reasonable for one to think that the simplest law, bananas must be straight, is not in fact an objective law. When dealing with testimonies to an event which, were it to have happened, would have been existentially significant, such as perhaps the resurrection of Jesus, it would be rational for one to think that if the testimonies do reach a sufficiently high standard for it to become reasonable for one to believe that the event occurred, one should think that the simplest law, when you're dead, you're dead, is indeed an objective law, but God has intervened to suspend it. A supernatural agent is much more likely to perform an existentially significant violation of an objective law than an existentially insignificant one. <coughs> okay. <coughs> it seems to me then that Hume's a priori argument against the rationality of believing in miracles on the testimony of others fails. If it is irrational to believe in the if it is irrational to believe in a given report or set of reports of a miracle, this will be for a posteriori reasons peculiar to that report or set of reports. But on this topic, a posteriori reasons that is, Hume is by no means silent. Hume has uh, this depends slightly on how one divides them up, of course, Hume has four a posteriori arguments against the rationality of believing in miracles on the testimony of others. Now, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to uh, go through these arguments just for reasons of time, but I have put them down on the handout and sketched a line of a response for each, and each is worth considering at your leisure. So there's a section of the argument that I'm not presenting already now, and I really don't want you to sort of read the handout now rather than listen to what I'm going on to say, but just be alert to the fact that one does really need to have read and thought about it before one can reach an overall conclusion. And overall, the conclusion I reach as a result of both the considerations I've presented orally and those on the handout, overall the conclusion I reach is that Hume's many-pronged assault on the argument from apparent miracles has secured him the potential for at least a limited victory. Hume has shown, I suggest, that unless the miracles associated with one religion are attested to by better witnesses and or have better exterior evidence in their favour than those associated with another, and perhaps some do, but he has shown that unless they do, it's not unreasonable, sorry, it is not reasonable to prefer one religion over another on the basis of the frequency of the miracles it purports occurred. Okay. So he's shown that unless the miracles associated with one religion are tested to by better witnesses, it's not reasonable to prefer one religion over another on the basis of the frequency of the miracles that it purports occurred. Hume hasn't shown that it is always irrational to believe in miracles on the testimony of others. His a priori argument fails and his a posteriori concerns, though to a greater or lesser extent legitimate, do look at the handout and see that the issues are fine-grained and finely judged here. His a posteriori concerns, though to a greater or lesser extent legitimate, could in principle, unsurprisingly, they are after all a posteriori concerns, his, these concerns could in principle be met. Whether or not they are met depends, of course, on facts beyond the scope of these lectures to investigate. As then with the argument from religious experience, I'm going to have to leave my conclusion about miracles in a hypothetical form in this context. Any argument from the reports of apparent miracles can never hope to be a deductively sound argument for the existence of God. 
even allowing that the event in question occurred, and that it was indeed a genuine miracle on Hume's revised definition, it could always be that there was a supernatural agent other than God responsible for it. However, an argument from the reports of apparent miracles could in principle be an inductively valid argument for God's existence, and even if it didn't reach quite that standard, it could in principle contribute something to an inductively sound cumulative case argument for the existence of God. And whether it does so in practice, it could in principle, but does it do so in practice? Whether it does so in practice depends on the considerations that I've outlined orally and that I give some description of also um, in the cautionary note at the end of the lecture handout. So have a look at that cautionary note as well. Okay, having argued in my first three lectures that the claim that there's a God is one, the truth of which is logically possible, no contradiction in the concept of God, the week before last I looked at two arguments for its truth, for it being actually true, the ontological argument and the cosmological argument in its contingency version. These are respectively the arguments that begin from what Kant would have called pure categories a priori and from indeterminate experience. And I concluded that neither of these arguments meets the criteria that I'd outlined for being a good argument, and that neither can in fact contribute to a good cumulative case argument for God's existence. So those were, in the versions I looked at, at least according to my analysis, write-offs. Then, last week, I looked at an argument from what Kant would call determinate experience, the design argument, and I concluded that in its fine-tuning version, this argument does in fact meet the criteria for being a good argument. Albeit that it's doing so rests, of course, on premises. No argument is independent of its premises. It's doing so rests on at least one premise, which is far from uh, controversial. Sorry, so far from uncontroversial. The premise of the transuniversality of value, as I call it. Now this week I've looked at two more arguments that begin from determinate experience. The argument from religious experience, uh, both one's own if one's had one, and the testimonies of other people. And the argument from reports of apparent miracles. My conclusions as to the merits of these two arguments have been more hypothetical than uh, in previous weeks. Both of these arguments I've suggested are potentially good arguments for the existence of God or potentially support the God hypothesis. And whether they actually manage to achieve this potential depends on empirical facts as sketched briefly and as detailed in the cautionary note on your handout. Now as I said in an earlier lecture, there are many, many arguments for the existence of God, many, many arguments against many arguments for the existence of God, and the time that we have together is short. So I've had to narrow my focus to looking at just a selection of those arguments. Even though much has been left unsaid about even the arguments that I've looked at, and of course even more has been left unsaid about those that I've not even mentioned, even though much has been left unsaid about the arguments for the existence of God, what I have said has been, I suggest, sufficient to show that we have some reason to believe that the central claim of the monotheistic religions there is a God is true. Be that as may, it's time for me to move on from considering arguments for the claim that God exists. Before we can decide what we have on balance most reason to believe, we need to consider arguments against the claim too. And that's the task to which we'll turn next week. Thank you for your attention this week. <laughs>